House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. So today we have uh, Brian Dunning. Now, uh, Brian is uh, the host of the Skeptoid podcast and uh, has had written some books on this subject. So, a very interesting man. Um, thank you for being here, Brian. Uh, well, thank you, but, but let me ask, are you having me on as the conspiracy theorist or as the person who uses science and logic? Well, I don't know. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm hoping the, the logic, uh, you know, because I, I, I we, we try to balance it out. You know, we had Dr. Shermer on a couple of times, and and I like I like logic. I'm the logical one. Actually, our our one host um, is from Infowars. That's <laughs> that's Kevin, and uh, he's off today. But uh, so we do hear a lot of conspiracy, um, which I think 99% of it is just BS. So um, it does make for some interesting radio, though, doesn't it? Well, it does. You know, and I don't mind having people on. Listen, you know, if someone wants to come on and they have an idea, and they have some evidence, or they have something that they can talk about that creates a possible conspiracy, uh, that's okay. I don't just write it off because it's called conspiracy, because it just means two people plotting out to do something, and um, so I, I try to keep an open mind to it, but once they start going off the deep end or selling something, then I'm usually not interested. <laughs> I, I was on one radio show, uh, a similar subject, We were they were having me on, this is right when my book, Conspiracies Declassified, came out, and the publisher was having me do kind of a whole circuit of radio shows and everything, and I won't say what show this is, but they had three hosts, these uh, two guys and a girl, and Every time we went to a commercial break, um, a girl was just jumping on me. She was challenging me on every conspiracy theory that you can imagine. And once when she was out of the room, the two other guys, and again, this is during the commercial break, they said, hey, we apologize for, uh, for what's her name. She's, she's kind of our resident nutcase. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, she was, she was as far out there as any conspiracy theorist I've ever written on or researched. It was a it was a wild program. How do you think people get lost in this? I mean, because a lot of these people are college educated, they're they're working, they're normal, they they have a pretty good life, a house, wife, dog, two kids, you know, uh, two cars. How do they get so caught up in it? I mean, uh, because logically, I look at things and you can hear some conspiracy, like the world's flat. And at first, I I'm just looking to see well. Can you prove that, or how do you how do you say that? What draws you to that conclusion? And I can talk rationally about it, but some people just just hold on to it. Like if the world is flat, that's it. Doesn't matter what you say. Yeah, well, of course, that's the sixty-four thousand dollar question: is why do people, you know, otherwise smart people, functional people, people who are in the world and and have lives and hold down a job, how can they be so far out there? on some beliefs that are just obviously um, profoundly absurd. Uh, and, 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 of course, many many conspiracy theories aren't that far out there. They're, they're easily proven wrong, but they're not, they're not crazy. For example, you know, 9-11 conspiracy theories, depending on which one you want to look at, some of them are wildly insane. Someone just sent me an email insisting that the, the airplanes were holograms. 
Um, and uh, then, you know, other ones are, you know, well, you know, Bush and Cheney, they had these connections. They're, you know, more, more, more rational, more plausible. So conspiracy theorists are all over the spectrum, all over the spectrum. And, in fact, all of us are somewhere along that spectrum. Um, and I think that's really important to keep in mind. The easiest person to fool is yourself, and we all believe things that aren't true. Um, we like to know what those are so we can correct those beliefs, but we all do believe some things that are, that are wrong. And the better we can recognize that, the better we can guard against, you know, becoming these people who are at the far end of the spectrum. But, I mean, to answer your question, it's a huge subject. Conspiracy theories are deeply compelling, kind of at an organic level. They, they confer upon the, uh, the believer this position of having this secret knowledge, this insider position. Um, I, I, I had a, a great conversation with someone who, who put it very well the other day. Um, he was saying that um, um, Zionists, who are often the villains and many conspiracy theorists, or you know, super Jews, uh, as he called them, he said they're basically like Spectre in the James Bond series. They're behind everything. They're running the secret world behind the scenes. And that puts the conspiracy theorist, that makes him James Bond. So <laughs> that's a great way to put it, because believing in a conspiracy theory, being the one who has this special secret knowledge, that, uh, that's a powerful position to be in, and that's you know, kind of a superpower that we all want to have. So, well, that would be my short answer. It's interesting that you mentioned Spectre, because in so many movies and TV shows in pop culture, you have um, these secret organizations that seem to run everything undetected. And they're powerful, and they can pull off any scheme at any time. And and I wonder, even if people don't believe in that particular thing and realize that that movie is fiction, I wonder if they still get the idea that such schemes can be pulled off, or that they, or that something like what they see in the movies is potentially real. I I, I think so. I mean, the, the, a point that I often make when addressing this subject is. Um, the, the whole idea how conspiratorial thinking is, a, is an evolved trait, right? I mean, the, the more likely we are to suspect uh, threats out there, the more likely we are to be able to protect ourselves from those threats. And so, you know, the classic example, if you hear a rustling, the, the, proto, the early proto-humans on the savanna heard a rustling in the grass. Some of them who thought it was some malevolent force, they climbed a tree. The other ones who didn't, who said, oh, that's nothing to worry about. Well, occasionally they got eaten by the saber-toothed cat. And that happens often enough that uh, over generations and generations, eventually this sort of native paranoia becomes a trait that natural selection selects for. And so we all got this native paranoia. But on the other hand, we all have our own life experiences, not just our education, but our our work, our experiences, where we go, what news we listen to, things we learn about the way the world works. And we're able to temper that native conspiracy mongering with life experience. And since all of us have different life experiences, uh, we temper that to different degrees. And I think that's one prime reason why some people are so far along the spectrum uh, than, than other people. It's just that they have a different life experience um, different things that they've been exposed to, different things they've learned about the way the world works that either, uh, you know, confirm or oppose those 
those kind of native tendencies. Yeah, I think now, I mean, there is a adverse selection on the conspiracy mongering, right? It, I mean, you look at people who are successful in the world, you know, forgiving the president for a moment. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, you know, people who tend to engage in this a lot tend to make less money. They tend to be less educated. Um, they they tend to be excluded from society either by choice or or not by choice. But it seems like like the selection is going in the opposite direction now. I mean, you can imagine that person that thinks so many people are to get him or her. They just can't leave the house, or they you know they, they won't take a job in a company that thinks. You know, I can't work at Monsanto because they're trying to take over the world, or I won't work for the government because, you know, they're involved in all these schemes. I mean, it, it, I, I think as much as nature sort of pushed this way of thinking, I think society is, just as you say, is now really pushing back. Uh, you know, that, that, that's interesting, uh, and, and it's it, it's especially interesting to me because it's a subject that I would like to learn more about, and. And Joe, you probably, with, with your experience um, uh, from a more academic perspective, you've probably been exposed to more research on this particular question than I have. But, but my, my experience, not based on research, but based on having been dealing with these people on a daily basis in my, my work and my writing, my experience has been that, um, that you're wrong, basically. <laughs> that you've, in, in all walks of life, in all groups of people, yeah. you've got all kinds of people. And I think that for every person who says, I won't work at this company because of reason X, I will work at this company because of reason Y. Yeah. And it all just kind of balances out. Um, you know, Elon Musk tweets out some pretty crazy stuff sometimes. And uh, you mentioned Trump. I mean, uh, and uh, how about the, uh, um, oh, my gosh, what's his name? The uh, the software security expert who had those legal problems in South America. Uh, yeah. McAfee. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, the, the list goes on and on. I, I, I think we do have this kind of thinking kind of in in all walks of life. I'm, I'm not persuaded that uh, that it's ever really valid to be able to paint any group with a large brush and have it be very accurate. Yeah. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know what, I think I'll give you that. And, 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 and I, you know, it's clear that you can find conspiracy theorists anywhere. I... Um, I mean, there are trends that, on average, people in the be you know people who are making a lot of money and people who are really educated tend to engage in this less. But you know, I will say I have colleagues who are hardcore conspiracy theorists, so it's not absolute. I mean, it's it's more of a trend, and the slope isn't incredibly high either. Um, so so you could find Trump, who's you know above average education, one of the richest people in the world, but somehow is just spouting. All of this stuff, and you can look at his life experience, um, which has largely been in a position of extreme privilege, surrounded by um, people who are very similar to him. Uh, very limited experience to diverse points of view, and it becomes less surprising why he would be such a conspiracy theorist in general. Yeah. Um, but the interesting, I think if we were to go and say, let's talk to all people in Congress, right, and get their conspiracy views, I imagine there's going to be a lot, but I imagine it would be less than, say, if we got a bunch of taxi drivers into a, into a room and asked them, you know, so, so 
It's not that that I would say that people who do well in the world have none. It's that I would say that they have some amount less. And I think perhaps where the research has to go is trying to figure out why there's less and then how much exactly that is. Because I would like to think that education is correlated with education, and I would like to think that education is correlated with having less conspiracy theories. Um, because, you know, I'm a professor, I'd like to think what I do matters, <laughs> particularly in this area, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't. No, I do agree with that. I do agree with that. I have seen that education is clearly associated with uh, less belief in, in conspiracy theories. Um, and, uh, again, that, that, that goes to my point. That's a, education is an important part of everyone's life experience. So... Do you, do you think there's we are going to see that trend. Do you think maybe there's it's more about um, the way the conspiracy makes the person feel, um, and not so much their education or wealth, because at the end of it, it makes you feel above others, um, not necessarily better than others, but it makes you feel like you're in the know. You have some sort of power, and perhaps a lot of people don't feel they have any power or any importance. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a, that's, that's a key component of why they're so attractive. Um, I mean, I remember, I remember one fairly formative moment for myself. And again, I hate to resort to anecdotes, but, but this is, this was my, my experience in this is when, uh, many years before I ever started doing science writing and everything, I, I was writing in the car with, uh, with a friend and he started, Telling me about all of these YouTube-style conspiracy theories, and this was before YouTube existed, <laughs> and I was I was enraptured. Uh, he captured my my mind 100. percent I I felt like oh my gosh I I had the wool lifted from in front of my eyes. Uh, it was an extremely persuasive moment. Uh, it, fortunately, it didn't take me too long to realize it was all nonsense, but uh, I remember the moment very clearly, uh, and it was it was it was a profound moment. Uh, that 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 um, temptation of forbidden knowledge, secret knowledge, being in a position of power that you weren't in five minutes ago before you'd ever heard this idea before, uh, that was very powerful for me. And yeah, I think I, it I, continues to be for people today. Yeah, I experienced the same thing when I watched Oliver Stone's JFK in the early 90s. You know, I was a, oh, yeah, yeah. in high school. It's just like, it was almost a tingly feeling watching this because, like, everyone was in on it, and it was just it as if there was this secret world um, going on that you could get access to. And it was almost, you know, you get to the end of the movie, and it's almost as if you're a brain in a jar, and you've been exposed to some new reality in the Matrix because um, everything you knew was wrong, everything everything you saw wasn't real, and everyone was in on it. It was as if I had this new access. Taking the red pill, yeah, that's that's a, that's a that's a very a very apt analogy in many ways. Yeah, yeah. I I I, I, I as soon as you said the, the JFK film, I, I I can think right away of of friends who saw the same movie, went down that path, and never came back from it. Now, in your book, you have a lot of conspiracy theories that you delve into. Which ones? Um, and this is always a tough question for me, but which ones do you think are the best evidenced? So you have Rothschild. Oh, the best evidence? Yeah, yeah. So, so some, you know, there'll be like no evidence that just really wouldn't convince anyone who has, you know, who needs evidence to be convinced. Um, but others, you know, you could probably um, make a decent case for. Yeah, 
Well, you know, that, that, that always raises the question of where exa what exactly do you consider a conspiracy theory or not? Because the publisher did want me to include a chapter. Actually, I, I pitched them on this, and they immediately said, yes, we need that, a chapter on conspiracy theories that turned out to be true. Now, to find those, you have to really kind of stretch the definition of what's a conspiracy theory. Um, a point that I've often made is that no conspiracy theory has ever been proven true, um, but, of course, that requires a very specific definition of what's a conspiracy theory. So the ones that are the best evidence, are, I'd say, are the ones that uh, least qualify as a conspiracy theory. And the, and the one that I always give as an example is numbers stations, um, the shortwave radio broadcasts. A few still exist today, but they're very common during the Cold War. You could pick up any shortwave radio, tune it to a particular station on a particular time of day, on a particular day of the week, and you would hear this mysterious broadcast of an automated voice reading out these long strings of numbers. Hmm. And for many, many years, there were all kinds of conspiracy theories claiming that uh, this is governments sending out uh, instructions to their spies, which sounds very tinfoil hat. And I initially poo-pooed. And I was much more open to more mundane explanations like, oh, it's probably oceanographic research buoys transmitting the data or something like that. Uh, and so you realize that a recorded voice would be a very inefficient way of transmitting data. Um, but then uh, a, a lot of people don't know this, but a few days after 9-11, and people don't know it because there were other things in the news a few days after 9-11, a high-ranking Pentagon official was arrested inside the Pentagon for espionage, and the evidence against her was that she had been listening to this numbers station out of Cuba, typing the numbers into her laptop computer and decrypting them and getting her instructions from the Cuban government. Oh. And uh, later other people were, uh, were also arrested and prosecuted for all being part of this Cuban spy ring. So the numbers stations turned out to be a conspiracy theory that was exactly true as advertised and the evidence is all over the place because it's not just in the united states in europe and the uk other spies have, have been arrested for um and successfully prosecuted for espionage for listening to numbers stations so that's exactly what it turned out to be that's my favorite example of, of one with the best evidence that turned out to be true okay when you when you when you get into theories that are outside of uh, you know, something straightforward like, you know, JFK assassination or something. Um, when people take one piece of, of evidence that they have or one thing that they can't answer and they build a theory around that without taking in the other evidence, that seems to be the biggest problem I see uh, amongst conspiracy theorists. Unfortunately, I, I lost the I lost the voice connection here for a minute, and I, I was not able to hear most of your question. Oh, okay. Um, I, I was going to say when we get outside of some of those far out conspiracy theories, and we get into something like the JFK assassination, where quite often people build their theory around one thing that's not explained, mm -hmm. and, and, and rather than a than a whole, and they just focus on that theory. Uh, that seems to be the biggest thing I see going on right now. 
Yeah, that's 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 an interesting uh, an interesting example because all of the various JFK conspiracy theories, um, you know, and, and and as we know, there are literally hundreds of them, and they are absolutely mutually exclusive. It's it's not possible that this one conspiracy was theory was true and this other conspiracy theory was also true. <clears throat> They're mutually incompatible, and yet these people all consider themselves allies because the one thing that they all agree on. And the one thing that's really the only thing that's important to them is that the Warren Commission was a lie. As long as they're on board with that, and as long as you start from that as your default assumption and go off from there, um, you're right. You're on the right path, according to all the JFK conspiracy theorists. As long as you have this one thing, this one starting point, this one assumption that's, um, uh, that cannot be, cannot be assaulted, um, you're all good. So, <laughs> um, that's, that's really, that's really something we find in, in, in all of the, uh, many of the conspiracy theories. The same, because we have the same thing with the 9-11. The 9-11 commission was wrong. As long as you start with that, doesn't matter if the airplanes were holograms or if it was, you know, George Bush himself running in and blowing up Building 7 with a explosive vest, all these things I've heard. Um, <laughs> You mean it wasn't? You're right. Your, your conspiracy theorist is good enough. <laughs> yeah. What, what was your most interesting conspiracy theory that you've had on the show? Um, so I, I like to answer this question with uh, the moon landing hoax, that the Apollo program was a hoax and that we never, ever went to the moon. Now, some people will say, well, that one's really not all that interesting because all the claims made by that are pretty easy to debunk. You know, things like, uh, you know, the, the angle of shadows in the photographs proving that it was taken in a studio or the, the flag waving in the wind when there was no wind on the moon. All these things are fairly easy to debunk, and we've, we've pretty much all heard the simple debunkings of those. But the reason I hold that one up as the most interesting is because what you can learn from the actual science-based reasons that prove that humans from Earth were on the moon and did bring moon rocks back safely through the atmosphere and they're now back here on Earth. All the links in that chain are proven by some really interesting and totally irrefutable science points. And I find that sharing the science behind those is something that everyone, conspiracy theorist or not, can say, whoa, that's really cool. That's really interesting. I just learned something new. I'd like to learn more about science. So that's, that's where, for me, that's where the real interest lies in, in the true science behind the mythology, if you will, not in the mythology itself. So when you get to the 9-11, which seems to be the biggest kind of um, ongoing uh, thing, I, I constantly see things yeah. coming up, and it never seems to stop. And um, how do you answer the, the, the primary questions like, you know, bu Building 7 being, a, you know, a, you know, controlled demolition and, and, and all, all the basic ones that come from that? Mm -hmm. yeah, that that's, that's, a, that's a really difficult question because um, I'll I'll, let me cite another quick example. Um, my friend Phil Plate, the well-known astronomer, 
um, was on, this was years ago, he was on Joe Rogan's podcast. Or actually, they, Joe Rogan and Phil were both on Ken Gillette's podcast debating whether the moon landing happened. And Joe Rogan, at the time, was a full-throttle conspiracy theorist that, uh, that we never went to the moon. And Phil is actually an astronomer and actually knows everything about that. Nevertheless, Rogan kicked his butt on, on the show. And later, um, Penn had Phil back on to kind of do a sort of a failure mode analysis. How were you, who actually knows the answers to all these questions, how were you able to be so trounced in this debate? And Phil's answer was, it's really easy for a scientist to know the science better than the conspiracy theorist. But the conspiracy theorist is always going to know the pseudoscience way better than you are. Rogan came up with all kinds of stuff that Phil had never heard of and had no way to respond to. So when you ask me now, how do you respond to all these claims that the people make? I say, that's pretty dangerous ground. You really don't even want to start down that road because you're not going to be able to answer a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I got into the trap of debating a, a Holocaust denier once, and they started talking about you know, the angle of a hinge on this particular panel in the roof of a gas chamber, things I'd never heard of, and I had no way to respond to it. I didn't even know what this thing looked like. And I come off looking like I'm unprepared, uh, like I don't have any science-based answers for some things that should be pretty obvious. Um, when you're not limited to the truth and you can come up with anything you want, it's very easy to come up with things that the science-based perspective is not going to have a response to. So it's a dangerous road to go down to try and debate a conspiracy theorist. And it's, it's not necessarily useful to try and answer all of their points. So what, what I will tend to do when I do an episode of my podcast on a, on a conspiracy theory, that's, it's, one of these, it's one of these huge conspiracy theories like JFK, I didn't even bother to address any of the conspiracy theory claims. Instead, you talk about the phenomenon and the sociology behind how and why people believe this kind of thing. At least that way, you're making a useful point and giving a useful an instructive lesson to, to listeners. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Have you guys had the same experience? Have you guys ever gotten in trouble trying to uh, trying to respond to some claims you've never heard before? Well, I think part of the problem is isn't just with the conspiracy theorists; it's with the audience too. In that, a conspiracy theorist is able to come up with like one weird thing, one anomaly, or one point, and it might be true or for, false, but the audience will be swayed by one thing as opposed to focusing on the entirety of all the evidence that's there. I mean, for the 9-11 Commission or the Warren Commission, I mean, they had lots and lots of witnesses, tons of evidence, tons of science, and you, you would have an audience member who listens to a debate and hears one point and then, is, you know, tosses out everything um, just based on one thing that a conspiracy theorist says. So I, I, I think... In terms of science education, we need to train people to look at the bulk of evidence rather than one arcane point um, and not to be swayed so easily. Which is a difficult proposition to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because it's, it's very easy to say one thing and have people, oh, well, I'll toss out the entire, you know, 20 some odd volumes of the Warren Commission in exchange for what some dude says on YouTube in a two minute video. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and, and that's a very real problem because all audiences typically have very short ex- attention spans. They're not going to go and do research. They're going to conclude whatever you've just told them to conclude. And, you know, in broadcast media, you often have a very short time to do that. Um, it's, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very high-risk arena. Yeah, I mean, if you want to, anyone can make a case about anything, and anyone can gather quote-unquote evidence to support any claim, right? It's just as long as you only pick evidence that supports your claim and exclude everything else, you have a good case. I mean, you did an episode on the satanic ritual abuse, um, and that was built entirely on just picking out little things that would suggest something and excluding all other science and evidence in favor of it. Yeah. And yeah, that's that's. But actually, what what's interesting, you bring this you you bring this up as um, sort of a an unfair strategy that the conspiracy theorists will use to promote their viewpoint. Um, I actually rely on the same strategy myself to promote my science-based perspective. Is I no longer engage in debates or I no longer give anyone, I don't even have comments on the website. I don't give anyone a chance to respond to the points that I make because all that can do is, is confuse the audience. Instead, I make my argument completely one-sided. I present what we know and how we know it. And I don't give the slightest opportunity for any misinformation to, to work its way in. I think that's probably the best way to make to make a point in, in the way today's you know fast-paced uh, short attention span media works yeah as this QAnon conspiracy was getting big in well at least in media coverage in <laughs> august um one of the q people um started harassing me and they went through my twitter feed and picked out a handful of pictures and put them together into a collage to try and make the case that I was a devil worshipping deep stater. And Oh, that's look- wonderful. I want to see that. <laughs> yeah, so when I went, when I look at it, I'm like, gosh, they actually did a pretty good job and I could probably buy this. <laughs> but wow. you would have to ignore the other five hundred pictures on Twitter that yeah. don't make me look like a devil worshipping deep stater, right? So it's you have to have a very selective view of, of, of the evidence to sort of pull these things off. You're, you're, you're reminding me of uh, the Bible Code, um, which you, you may know was originally a book written by a guy who was claiming that all of these predictions about the future and everything are encoded in the Bible uh, using a letter spacing code. You know, like if you look at every 15th letter starting on page 6, then it spells out a sentence. Um, and when I did my episode on this, I quickly learned that um, in any large enough body of text, and it doesn't even have to be all that large, nowhere near as large as the Bible, and the right piece of software, it's trivial to find just about any phrase you want um, with this software that automatically does these searches through the text. And find, So you can type in your name. I can type in Brian Dunham is the devil, and I guarantee you that's in the Bible. Um, just software can find it. So exactly the point you're making. Yeah, you, you you come up with something like that that looks really really improbable, and people don't really realize, you know, as far as the law the law of large numbers works, it's actually extremely probable. But when it's framed as being extremely improbable, it can be very persuasive. I mean, I noticed the same thing with the movie Zeitgeist. 
that was big with conspiracy theorists for a while. Mm -hmm. And it tried yeah. to draw correlations between, you know, things in the Bible and things in other religions. And all it yeah. really relied on was we found a few things that are similar between this and that, and then it ignored everything else that was completely different. Yeah, and even most of those things that they found that they said matched up were straight out fabrications. Mm. Um, uh, the guy that the guy that made that movie, who made it in his New York art studio, uh, having basically never never left his apartment or been out in the outside world, but somehow figured out uh, all of the geopolitics of the entire globe. Um, his that section of his movie was based almost entirely upon this, the work of this one author. He's a uh, uh, a woman whose name I don't recall, um, but um, her book was, she was kind of a New Age spiritualist, and she kind of had all this paganism, paganistic criticisms of organized religion. And so she just kind of made stuff up. And uh, he fairly uncritically parroted much of that book for that section of Zeitgeist. So it was uh, horribly sourced. Um, but in addition, he then went the extra step, as you say, and used only the information that supported his position and ignored the much larger body of information that refuted it. You know, one thing I noticed was uh, a lot of that behavior of the conspiracy theorist of taking one point and, and making the decision on that rather than the whole entire amount of evidence is also turning up a lot in our court cases, the ones on TV, or the ones you see on court TV and, and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, I often think how, how scarily true it is that if I decided to be a lawyer, I'd be really good at it. <laughs> it's based on this, all this experience of how, how easy it is to persuade people of things that either are or are not true, depending on what you want to do. Um, yeah, that's a that's a that's a very sobering point, though. Well, that's what's very good about having an adversarial court system, I and mean, for all its faults. I mean, if you only focused on the evidence that the prosecution brings forward, everyone would be guilty, right? But you have a defense there to sort of show other evidence and to put the prosecution's claims into context. And oftentimes mm -hmm. what you find is that, you know, if you only look at one side in isolation, you get a very jaundiced view. But if you look at everything together, um, then then you have a much more full view of evidence. And um, I think, in you know, people don't always realize that. Like we have, you know, these national scandals going on now where you'll see, you know, one cable news story run with one piece of evidence that isn't put in context or questioned or challenged and you could draw one really wild conclusion from it you know but but you're not picking up on everything so yeah and uh, I mean there's we could talk about that all day um, you know uh, prosecutors offices have uh, press departments and they put out press releases all the day uh, all, all the time do you think those press releases are fair and balanced or do you think they promote uh, the perspective that the defendant is guilty and here's whatever we want to say that hasn't been in court yet and so is unchallenged. So the, the news reporting that you'll often hear about cases that have not yet gone to trial are nearly always based exclusively upon prosecutors' press releases. Um, the defense r rarely has that luxury because 
before you're going into court, if you're going to fight a case, you don't want to tell the prosecution what your defense is going to be. So you can't put out a press release. So the news reporting is often biased um, in favor of prosecutors. Um, and that's that's a problem, too. Now, on your newest book, uh, what are people going to get from that? Like, what what is it that you are trying to... Uh give to the uh, to the to the readers so conspiracies declassified is um it's a collection of 50 kind of fun and wild conspiracy theories it's 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 intended to be the ones that people have already heard of um you know when when the publisher first contacted me they said well gee 50 is a big number do you think you can come up with 50 i said well let me see and I went to my database of podcast episodes that I've done, and I exported just the category of conspiracy theories, and there was 210. So I said, yeah, I think we can come up with 50. <laughs> and put a little list way down. But So this is not, this is not an academic book. This is not um, you know, a, a heavy book. It's, it's, it's more fun. It's light reading. Um, and the idea is that any conspiracy theory that you've actually heard, whoever whoever you are and whatever that conspiracy theory is, it's probably in here. And in just a few pages, we give kind of a, a light and fun, but absolutely fact-based and thoroughly referenced explanation of what actually happened. Here's what the here's what the popular version of the story is. Here's what uh, here's what actually happened. And as often as we have that information, I would include. Here's how it got twisted, why it got twisted, and why people tend to believe this part of it that's not true. That's always where the most interesting part of the story is. And um, I enjoy that aspect of uh, conspiracy theories very much, is when there's a great story behind how and why it came to be. Um, That's where I think um, you can really engage the public's interest and imagination. It's what I try to do the most in all of my episodes, and, and, and I think it was very successful. Um, in, in this book, so that's uh, that's kind of my pitch for the book. So I would encourage listeners to check out the Skeptoid podcast if they haven't yet. Now you do more than just conspiracy theories. You also have a lot of episodes on urban myths and pseudoscience. I think one of my favorite episodes is on cupping, and I wound up sharing that quite a bit during the Olympics a few years ago because. During the Olympics, yeah. Yeah, just because Michael Phelps and other Olympians were doing the cupping, and people thought, oh, my God, well, this must be good. Um, but the truth um, it doesn't really support this, right? It doesn't remotely support that. It's, it's, it's very much an attention-seeking behavior. These kind of these alternative medicine schemes that give you something obvious like a cupping bruise. You know, you're, you're showing the world, hey, look how enlightened I am. And, and it's a silly thing. It's a silly, silly thing. Um, they've actually tried to legitimize the cupping by giving it a better name. They call it a myofascial uh, decompression, I believe, myofascial decompression therapy, which sounds very sciency. <laughs> and of course, anyone who understands basic physics knows that when you have something suctioned to your skin, you're pushing on the skin just as much as you are pulling on it. Um, so it's not really decompressing anything at all. So I mean, the whole thing is is so silly and pseudoscientific to begin with. Um, it's nowhere near as ancient as it's uh, commonly promoted because you know this whole idea of ancient wisdom is something the public is always hungry for. If it's ancient, it's therefore enlightened, and so uh, people love that. So they try and market uh, just about any alternative therapy with the claim of ancient wisdom. Now, um, why do you think that is? Yeah, because uh, because it's so anti-modernity. 
and science has given us so many great things and you know if we could live in any time now would be it as opposed to any time in the past but somehow people want to find out what the ancients did or do the paleo diet i want to eat like cave people or something like that and i i, I don't yeah, quite I mean, understand why as soon as you bring up food i mean that opens an, an enormous pandora's box anytime you've got people in the world whose needs are satisfied and they're comfortable they don't have any real problems anymore, so they have to try and make some up. And so, you know, that's why we have this whole idea of, um, it's basically the Western esotericism movement that it got really big in the 1970s. First, we're seeking out everything that's Chinese, looking for Chinese wisdom. Um, it, it's looking for spiritual meaning in, in everything that you do. You want the things that you eat, the things you do, the things you practice to have meaning and to be spiritual. Um, it's this whole kind of, enlightenment phase and um, while there's there's no science behind it there's a lot of psychology behind it and you know attention seeking like the Michael Phelps thing that's that's just that's just one small part of it um, um, it actually crosses over very well into conspiracy theories because when you have this enlightened knowledge that's very similar to the, the super secret knowledge that we were talking about that conspiracy theorists are attracted to so this, this whole idea of having this special enlightenment is, is very similar psychologically to that. So uh, what do you think about um, current politics as it gets involved, without getting into party, but just with, you know, Trump and all the conspiracies and stuff, and Alex Jones and all that, where do you think it's going to go? Like, where, where is it headed with... Um, things being uh, cut from like YouTube and and Twitter and all that for Alex Jones. Do you do you, do you think this is going to lead to uh, cleaning up conspiracy theories? Um, no, I don't. Um, you, what I I think it's going to cool down. I don't think we're going to be in a different position afterwards. You know, say five ten years from now, I don't think things will be any different uh, than they were five ten years ago. The, the, the whole thing that's going on right now, we are indeed a very divided society right now. It's very much us versus them. Um, if we look at the things that our friends post on Facebook, uh, you know, probably some minority of those friends are from the opposite tribe, whichever one that is, and the majority of them are from our tribe, whichever one that is. Uh, but the, the, the gulf between them is definitely wider than it has ever been. And I... I actually um, wrote a little piece on this this morning um, because uh, um, to me, to me, what's going on now smacks much more of game theory than it does of party politics. And and the part of game theory I'm referring to is kind of the basic tenet, game theory 101, which shows that people would rather consider themselves to be the winner in a situation. Even if it costs them money or costs them a position or costs them something, um, then they would consider themselves a loser even if they come out ahead. Uh, and that's very interesting. And that's, that's why people will pay more for organic food because they're winning. They've come out behind. They've gotten exactly the same product, but they've paid more money for it. They've come out behind, but they consider themselves to have won because they've selected the more enlightened product. And, Kind of that's what's going on now. We have the um, 
What's being called the alt-right really has very little to do with uh, conservative politics. It has to do with this game theory-based obsession with winning. Um, when we see political correctness, um, people will view political correctness as sort of this unearned grace being conferred upon marginalized classes. Um, and when someone else is being given attention, that means that you lose. And so we want to kick that down, fight back to that. We want to win. We want to kick their ass. We want to be the, the cool ones. So we strike back at political correctness. And that's, that's game theory. It's not conservative politics. It's, it's, um, it's a fascinating situation. Um, that, um, that this whole alt-right movement has been closely associated with uh, the, the Republican political party is actually doesn't make all that much sense. It probably makes more sense than if it were the liberals, but um, it's it's not about party politics. It's about game theory. That's It's a very nascent idea that I'm sort of working on and starting to develop, but uh, that's what I think is going on. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty interesting time. Um, so now if people want to get a hold of you or they want to send you a uh, uh, a theory. <laughs> How do they do that? <laughs> God, when I was on Rogan's podcast, we asked people to send me conspiracy theories. I don't think any oh. email inbox has ever exploded. As <laughs> 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 uh, much as mine did. So yeah, um, skeptoid.com is where the podcast is, and you can reach me on Facebook and Twitter at Brian Dunning. Um, you can just even just email me, Brian at skeptoid.com pretty easy stuff um yeah i really enjoy doing the podcast and talking about this stuff it's i'm very fortunate to be able to do it for a living and um yeah i'd love to engage with people so come on down and check it out and speak and speaking of that how how did you how did you feel now about the rogan interview like what's your what's your look on it now well, the problem with the Rogan interview is not the actual, if you go to the three-hour version, it's actually a fairly fairly intelligent conversation most of the way through. But unfortunately, what they did is they cut it down to 24 minutes, and it was fairly dishonestly edited. Um, it clearly was edited to make me look like a complete jerk and a, a knowledgeable about anything. Um, and that's what people see. So unfortunately, the... Uh, the Rogan interview, um, I, I wouldn't have done it if I'd known that that's what they were going to do with it. Um, and that's unfortunate. But um, it, I, I, he's super influential. He's got an enormous audience. Um, and there's a lot of good that can be done um, engaging with him. And that's not what happened when I went on. He does, does not care to be challenged on conspiracy theories and other things. And if you do, you take a big risk. And I took that big risk and I lost. But he put out that edited version and... <laughs> to this day, I mean, that was four or five years ago that I was on, and to this day, I get these just these really brief, obscenity-laden emails from from his fans who just watched the 24-minute uh, edit and just want to cuss me out. But do you think that Joe Rogan has changed over the years? And I think maybe you were sort of a spark that sort of pushed that because he has had a lot more science based guests yeah. on, and I think he's, his his attitudes have sort of come more in line with science. Very much. I, I believe he has very much changed. Um, um, he, um, he's, he, he's definitely, he has the ability to be a, a, a force for good. 
um, and he does have on great guests, and he does. He told me he no longer believes in any of the conspiracy theories, and and I believe him when he tells me that. People generally don't lie about what they believe. So I do believe that he's come around on, on, on many of them at least. Um, that wasn't so evident when I was on. Um, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, 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 I still, I would still uh, encourage people um, to go on the show um, to use his platform to promote good information. Um, just, just be careful. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, it's been a it's been a real pleasure. Uh, great to meet you, and um, thanks for taking the time to uh, come on our show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I, like I say, I love talking about this stuff, so it's always fun. To find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.